Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. We've been in Ezra, Nehemiah now for 53, no, somewhere around, somewhere around 48 sermons, for, somewhere around there. Um, I didn't take the time to look up the date of when we started Ezra, Nehemiah, but that's where we are, and you are walking in in Nehemiah chapter 1, and in the English Bible, we divide these books into two different books, but as many of you know, in the Hebrew Bible, they are one book. Ezra and Nehemiah is one story of the returning exiles to uh, Jerusalem. Now, just for your edification... I have a, there's a timeline on the back table if, if for some reason you want to know the time and circumstance of what's going on around. There's this timeline on the back table. It's got Nehemiah on the back, Ezra on the front. Uh, easy for you to see the dates and times of what we are studying here. You can see the different kings in different locations. And uh, this morning, the only other supplement that you have in your bulletin is these, uh, a thing about Paul's instructions on prayers. These are homework, by the way. These are just for your, your fun. That's uh, just for you while you have fun. We're going to talk a little bit about prayer and fasting today. Fasting is a weird thing in the United States. We don't do it very often, uh, though you should. There's a list of scriptures to take through fasting and to read through what fasting is. And then on the back, there's a list of prayers, Paul's exhortations towards prayer in the New Testament. Um, just for fun for you to do as you read, if you want to do further study. But now, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll read the first chapter together. Let's dive in. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Henani. One of, the, one of my brothers came with a certain men from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as... As I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today, to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. When the wine was poured before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, not been sad in his presence. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. We added chapter one so you'd see, or chapter two, verse one, so you'd see the month that's going on there, and that'll be explained in just a second. So we come to Nehemiah, and I just want to remind you of a couple things. Ezra and Nehemiah is a book that covers about a hundred years of time. It's a it's a span of about a hundred years of time. The first large chunk of that is in the first half of Ezra. There's about 60 years or, or so, 60 or 70 years represented in the first five chapters of Ezra. And that's not because the first five chapters cover 60 to 70 years, but because there's a 60-year break in which we have the book of Esther at chapter 5 before you get to chapter 6. So if you go to Ezra and Nehemiah and you're reading chronologically, you'd read Ezra, chapters 1 through 5, then you'd read Esther, then you'd go back to Ezra and chapter 6, and you'd continue reading. So this is, uh, this is about a 100-year period, Ezra through Nehemiah. There are three main leaders. Zerubbabel, who is the descendant from David's line, who's the governor, who comes in uh, under Shealtiel, uh, his, his dad, he comes from him, and he's, he comes in as the governor, and he's the one in chapters 1 through 5. And he comes in, and he institutes sacrifices, and he rebuilds the altar, and he brings everybody along, and there's a massive crowd, and there's rejoicing and cheering. And remember, we have this hint at one point. They rejoice and cheer, and the adversaries rise up, and they have a period of waiting where they are hindered from doing any work, where they're hindered from sacrificing, where they're hindered from rejoicing in the Lord, and their worship is hindered because of outside circumstances. And so you've got that going. And there's this hint that not everything is perfect because the young people who are there who had not seen the old temple rejoice in the sacrifice and they cheer and they cheer with loud cries. And then the elderly who had seen the glory of, of the temple before were crying for lack of of the glory that was there. Then you have Ezra shows up and Ezra brings the law. You've got Zerubbabel who's of the king line and he starts to rebuild the temple. And then you have Ezra come halfway through the rebuilding of the temple who continues the work and this guy brings the law. He brings the priestly law. And we read in chapters 7 through 10 Ezra's arrival and Ezra's Ezra's presentation of the law and Ezra's teaching people the law and remember uh it gets depressing because he teaches the law. And what they find out in chapter 10 is that there is no salvation under the law. 
that they are in a difficult, horrible place because they have broken God's commandment and there is not a good way out of that according to the law. So it ends with many of the wives that, they were, that the Jews were divorcing uh, had children. And it's this horrible, gut-wrenching feeling at the end of Ezra. Then, Nehemiah comes into play. And Nehemiah is the third leader in this book, in Ezra and Nehemiah. And he is the guard and protection who comes in and rebuilds the walls of the city so that they have protection and defense and the power of God. And what you can see in these three leaders is you've got a king who brings righteousness. You've got a priest who brings the law. And you've got Nehemiah who acts somewhat as a prophet who brings the, who's supposed to bring the voice and protection of God's word. Now, I just want to remind you, Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah are all inadequate. None of them are the guy. All through the Old Testament, you are waiting for the guy. All through it. Even in Genesis chapter 1, you're waiting for the guy. Genesis chapter 3, it says, The seed of the woman will crush that of the snake. And what does Eve say after she has her first kid? Behold, by the help of the Lord, I have begotten a man. In chapter 4. And she thinks in that indication, what that's doing is she's going, this is the seed of the woman who's going to crush that of the snake and set everything right. And it goes horribly, horribly wrong. As Cain kills Abel in the very same chapter. And you're going, well, he's not the guy. And then Noah comes. And you go, maybe Noah's the guy. And what do they say about Noah? We name him Noah, for he will bring us rest from our toil. A direct relation to Genesis 3, where Adam is told, you will labor and toil. By the sweat of your brow, you will have bread. Labor and toil. So we see that comes with Adam... And you see them go, Noah, Noah's the guy. And Noah ends up not being the guy, ends up drunk and, and shamed in front of his kids. Then you go, okay, maybe, maybe it's going to be Abraham. And Abraham lies about his wife. And then, oh, it's not Abraham. Okay, maybe it's going to be Isaac. And Isaac is not much better than Abraham. And then you go on to Jacob and, whoo, his very name means liar. Well, he's not the guy. And then you're going, okay, where's the guy? All through the Old Testament, you're looking for the guy. And all through the Old Testament, God keeps hinting, I'm going to send him. I'm going to send him. He's going to come. He is already, and yet he will come. He is victorious already, and yet he will come. Have faith. Have faith. He will come. And he keeps saying it over and over and over. He keeps telling them. He keeps giving them pictures. Moses. Moses ends up. And you're going, Moses is the guy. He's going to bring Israel out of slavery. He's going to take them into the promised land. And what happens? Not the guy. Dies on a mountain. He can see the promised land. Doesn't get to go into it. Joshua. Joshua. Joshua is going to be the guy. And what does it say at the end of the book of Joshua? Canaanites were still in the land. Amorites were still in the land. He could not drive out sin. He could not drive out sin. You've got all... These pictures of not the guy. When we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, this is the last picture of not the guy. This is the last picture in the Old Testament of not the guy. This is the end of the Hebrew canon. 
After this in the Hebrew Bible, in Hebrew you've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and then the recap, First and Second Chronicles. And that goes at the very end of the book. Right before we would put Matthew, where the king enters. And then Mark, where the prophet enters. And then Luke, where the priest enters. And then John, where God is. Where God comes to dwell with his people. And remember what it says in Ezekiel, where he says, the temple is formed, and what's lacking in the temple? The presence of God. That's the picture we have in Ezra and Nehemiah. Everything gets built up at the end of this book. You've got the temple walls. You've got the walls of the city. You've got the sacrifices being done. You've got the law being read out loud. And Nehemiah ends with him going, it's still not enough. We need Jesus. So, as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we can look back on it and we can go, we have him. We have the ability to worship We have the ability to know Him. We have the ability to walk in righteousness. We have the ability. He has cleansed us of sin and made us His. And we can follow Him. So we look at this book with such joy. But we want to look at it honestly. So, I wanted to remind you about that. This Nehemiah is not the guy. Ezra is not the guy. Zerubbabel is not the guy. Jesus is the guy. Jesus is the one who died for your sins and rose again and you would have life. And only He can bring you life and salvation. Only He can give you the abundant life. So, the three leaders. And then we've got lessons and principles that abound in Nehemiah. And I just bring this up because I'm sure many have read books about Nehemiah specifically or sat through sermon series about Nehemiah specifically. If you grew up in church, at some point, your church did a building campaign and this came up. At some point. Um, Just so you're aware... We don't do that here. Um, these sermons are planned out eight months in advance. And so you get what you get as we walk through the Word. And the Spirit of God will move where He wants to. Um, whether or not we'll ever do a building campaign is a whole another. Um, lessons and principles abound in this book, but we want to keep the first thing, the main thing, the main thing. Lessons and principles abound in Ezra and Nehemiah, but we want to keep the main thing, the main thing. And as we want to see Jesus, we want to know how to better follow Jesus. We want to be more like him. So, that being said, let's talk about who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah, uh, his name means the Lord comforts. Uh, He is uh, a son of Hakaliah, which means wait for the Lord. This is interesting in in my brain because... Nehemiah meaning the Lord comforts, and then Hakaliah meaning wait for the Lord. It, it's almost as if he's saying, the Lord will comfort if you wait for him. Those that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll walk and not grow weary. They'll run and not grow faint. The Lord brings comfort. You, you wait for his timing. And you wait for when he's going to do it. So we have the Lord comforts, wait for the Lord, the son of waiting for the Lord. And he is the cupbearer to the king. In verse 11, that's the way that this first chapter ends. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. And he is a Jew who is living in Susa. In in Susa there in verse 1, the capital. So he's living in a relative comfort 
in Susa, and he's the cupbearer. He holds a mid-level management position with the king. This is a mid-level manager. He comes in, he tests the food, he's in charge of a lot of the food that the king is going to eat. He also engages with the king on a personal level. He's probably considered kind of like a servant friend to the king. He has access to the king that most people do not. So he's highly trusted. As cupbearer to the king, he would be the one who the king would look at and go, what do you think of dinner? And he'd go, well, the meat was a little tough. And the king might laugh and be like, that's right, it was a little tough. Next time, tell them to put some barbecue sauce on that. That's the, that's the kind of engagement he would be giving, right? Like he'd be doing this. Did I just commit a cardinal sin in Texas saying put a barbecue sauce on it? And some of you looked at me like... <laughs> um, his love for the Jews is coming from a guy who does not share in their circumstance. Nehemiah is in a place where he does not share in their circumstance. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not scrapping for survival. He is in comfort, and he lives in Susa, the capital city. He lives in a nice place. He's got amenities. He's got comforts. And yet, note how much he loves the people of God. Note his heart for the people of God. He hears about their distress, and he weeps. He weeps. His love for a group of people there is one that shares no other common bond except a shared faith. His love for this group of people is through a shared faith. Much like when we pray for other nations on Thursday nights, we pray for other countries in our small group, at least one every, every week. And when we do that, we are exercising this truth that we are united with believers Across the, across the world, no matter who they are. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus who testifies Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, we're family. We're family. And so we, we unite with one another. We, we pray for one another. And there's a burden that we share. In Hebrews, it admonishes us to remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them. For we are of one body. Now, we have a brother in our in our congregation who's in prison and we remember him he's a delight and a wonder and if you ever want to email or talk with him let me know i'll get you the contact information and you can write and correspond with him and he's a delightful brother and we remember him in our prayers i do not have any idea what prison is like and yet i remember him as though i'm with him i'll pray for him as though i'm there in the same way, this is the way the body of Christ works. You don't share the same struggles as everybody else. You don't struggle with the same things everybody else does. But your struggles are no less than theirs. And their struggles are no less than yours. They're just different. And we do it best. This is a saying we have at this church. We struggle best when we struggle together. When we work together in our struggles. When we live in community together and we struggle together. That's where we struggle best. So, this is the first thing we can see from Nehemiah, is that he's got a love for people who he shares faith. And now, in verse 2, we see that Hanani, one of the brothers, came with, a certain, with certain men from Judah. And I asked concerning the Jews who escaped 
who survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So he asked the situation and we see that God's people are in ruin. Uh, it's winter, by the way. This is November. Uh, Chislev is somewhere between November and December here. So it's winter. And his brothers bring a report that there is trouble, shame, and they're defenseless. So in essence, the situation is this. God's people are in ruin. They are failing in holiness under the law. And they are in danger. The sadness of Ezra chapter 9 and 10 is echoed in this passage. The, the weight of Ezra 9 and 10 is echoed here. Where Hanani comes and brings this report and says they are in trouble, they're shame, and they're defenseless. Nehemiah, it's, it's bad. It's bad. We just came back and they stood out in the rain. They were standing out in the rain as they were deciding whether or not they needed to divorce their wives who serve foreign gods. Nehemiah, it's bad. The walls are torn down. Anybody can get into the city and out of the city. There are raiders, people taking stuff. It's awful. Nehemiah, it's bad. And Nehemiah feels the weight and sadness that we read about the last two weeks. And it's winter. Now, this is one of the beautiful things about Scripture. Scripture is beautifully poetic. He is telling you that it's winter, but he's including that for a reason. It's not just to give you a timeline. He's telling you that it's in that month so that you go, okay, that's cold. That's cold. So that you'd understand that this is the way it feels. It's the same thing that he did in Ezra 10 when he said it was raining. It was pouring rain. And they asked, can we postpone this until it's not raining so hard or maybe make appointments so we don't all have to stand out here while we deliberate in the rain? And there's just this feeling, this, this dread. Hollywood has nothing on the Bible by way of imagery and pictures. The Bible is over 33% uh, poetry. I would say probably closer to 40 or 45% poetry. And it is beautiful when you read it. And in this passage, it is giving you this picture of Nehemiah cold off to the side. And he's getting this report. And he's rubbing his hands together. And he's hearing the report and he's going... It's winter, and there is distress, and the temple is on fire in the winter. The walls are being burned, that have been burned down in the winter. He's giving you this picture of of major distress, and Nehemiah is standing there, and he hears the report, and he weeps, and his brothers give the report, and they use these three words. They use the word evil, which is the word trouble. That's the word trouble there, ra. It's evil. It's this word that indicates a evil or depressed state. And then he uses the word shame. They're in great shame. This is an external shame, right? Like this is the idea that the whole world can see they're evil and therefore they are ashamed. They are ashamed by the world. They are shameful to the world. They are living in a form of shame here And then the third thing, there are no walls. So his brothers are in great evil and distress, depressed evil. 
And they're in shame. People see them and it's awful. And there's no defenses. There's no protection. So we've got this picture. You get the picture? This is sad. This is depressing. And Nehemiah is in a place of comfort and ease. How often we are in the American church, in the American Christianity we live in, in comfort and in ease when we hear about the distresses of our brothers and sisters overseas. When we hear about our, the distresses of our brothers and sisters, sometimes just to the north of us. When we hear about the distresses of our brothers and sisters who don't have the amenities we have, and then we read about their love for the Lord and we delight in their love for Him and we pray for them. How, how often this happens. How often we are burdened by this. And we must respond the same way Nehemiah does in this, where we say this is great, horrible, evil. So Nehemiah responds next. And we see that he weeps and he fasts and he prays. He weeps and he fasts and he prays. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, we'll get to what he says in a second. Let's just look at his posture first. He stops and he fasts and he prays and he weeps. This is the right response to when God burdens your heart with something for somebody else. Note, he does not start taking up a collection to send to Jerusalem. He does not start making plans to solve the problem. Nehemiah is a man of action, but he doesn't do that first. What he does first is let this land on him and seek the Lord. His first response is to pray, to weep, to pray, and to fast. And in Scripture, when you are seeking something from the Lord, fasting and praying are bedfellows. They go together. When you want to hear from God, you fast and you pray. Again, if you don't know how to fast, you don't know what fasting is, I gave you homework. I could spend a whole hour talking about fasting. We're not going to do that this morning. Um, do your homework. Let's talk about it over lunch while we eat, ironically. Right? Let's, let's do that. So fasting and praying go together. We fast and we pray. How, how, much, how, how much can we learn here? That the first reaction of a believer in God ought to be to kneel down before the Lord and fast and pray. To fast and pray and to weep. Those are the first, that's the first response in distress. And how, how often is that your first response? I love what I hear most often from people that I walk closely with and what they hear from me, because it's not just them, I do it too. When a distressing situation comes out, we come up with 700 ways to solve the problem before we seek the Lord. None of those ways work. And after about a week, we go, I've decided I'm just going to stop and listen and pray. And often the other person who's talking to me goes, yeah, you should have done that a week ago. I've been waiting. <laughs> right? This is, this is the way that it works. When we come to a distressing condition, the first thing we should do 
is recognize the sorrow of the condition, then fast so that we are attentive to the word of God and his spirits moving, and then pray. And then pray. It is a great habit to fast and to pray. I can talk you through that. We take, we take our call to pray here very, very seriously. I have notebook systems and ways that I do it that work for me. Andrew has ways he does it that work for him. Same kind of stuff, writing things down, making sure that we're covering all the bases. We have methods of prayer that we can help with each other. My brothers who are in the congregation who we pray together, they, they have methods and systems. We take prayer very seriously here, and you ought to as well. This is one of the gifts you have in the Holy Spirit to be able to talk directly to God. And so Nehemiah kneels here and he prays heavy, deep prayers in the month. In chapter 2, verse 2, it tells you how long he prayed. In the month of Nisan, that's somewhere around March or April. So he prays from November, December to March, April. For about four months, he is praying continuously. He is praying continuously for about four months. Now, we have this example all through the Old Testament. Isaac does the same thing for his wife for years. He prays for his wife for years before she has a child. We have examples of the Old Testament people, people of God, falling on their face before the Lord and praying for a long time before they do anything. Oh, that we would be such a people who would pray and fast and weep and commune with the Lord for as long as it takes before we get the answer. Pray and wait. God will send comfort. Pray and wait. God will send comfort. So, second, he prays and he lays and he weeps before God. The focus and object of his prayer is the Lord. Note, he does not pray and weep and and make a list of all the things that he's going to do. He does not pray and weep and plan. He prays and fasts and weeps and lays there before God. He waits on the Lord to answer. Christians, sometimes you got to wait a long time for a specific answer from the Lord. Sometimes you have to wait a long time, but he will bring it. He will bring you an answer as you wait. Third, his first response is prayer. Oh, that ours would be prayer as well. Nehemiah's reaction to the difficulties of the world is to bow down before God and pray with waiting and fasting. So next, we have the, the content of Nehemiah's prayer. Now let's read Verse 5 and following. 5, he says, I said, O Lord of heaven, O Lord, the God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So let's stop. I mean, I know I'm stopping at every verse. This is exciting. So he says, O Lord God, the God of heaven. He uses the same moniker we saw Cyrus use of God. This is the moniker that the Persian kings used of God, the God of heaven, the Lord, the God of heaven, Yahweh, the God of heaven. So he is using that same thing. He is telling, the author is telling you here, he's got a connection to Persia. He's got a Persian language here. 
he's using this phrase, the Lord, the God of heaven. The basis of his prayer begins with how he has known God. Go ahead and give you that. God's character is the basis of his prayer. So he comes before the Lord and prays to the Lord that the Lord would answer him on the basis of his, of his character. When you come to God and you ask him for things or you seek his will, you do it on the basis of who he is. You do it on the basis of who he is. One, he's the God of heaven. Second, he keeps his covenant. God keeps his covenant. Remember, when Abraham has the vision of the covenant with God, do you remember who walks through the split halves? Abraham doesn't walk through. God walks through. God keeps the covenant. He knows Abraham's going to mess it up. He knows the people of Israel are going to mess it up. And guess what? He knows you're going to mess it up. But he's a good and gracious God who walks through the covenant himself and says, if, this, if either of us break this covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be torn in half for you. And guess the good news? The good news is that that's what happens. The people of God rebel against God himself and God tears himself in half on the cross. Rips himself in half that you would have life. Oh, how beautiful the gospel is in Genesis. In the beginning of the book that God stands and keeps his covenant with his people. You are people of the new covenant in Jeremiah 30 that have been redeemed by God's hand. That Jesus has rescued. And how beautiful is this? How wonderful is this? So when we approach God, we first approach him as God of heaven, transcendent above all. We, we approach him with our own language. He's the God of heaven. He's transcendent above all. And then second, he's the God who keeps his covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7 says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as, our, as Yahweh, our God, as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? Deuteronomy 4, 7. And then again in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is good. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He is the God who keeps his covenant and he keeps his love as well. Now that Hebrew word for love there is the word hesed. If you don't know what the word hesed means, let's talk about it more later. But all I can tell you right now is the definition of that word is so long that uh, I failed a test because I only filled up half a page. Right? This, this is a long word. It has nuanced meaning. It is huge and very, very extensive. This is God's love, not ours. This is beyond our love. And yet, it's the love that he places in the hearts of believers and it's the love that he tells you to have for one another when he says, they will know you by this, that you love one another. And no greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And he has laid down his life for us. This is the love of Jesus. He keeps his love for us. Now, we first pray on the basis of of God's character. When we pray, we approach Him on the basis of His character. Now the basis of His prayer is God's character, and then He references the outpouring of God's character through His people. Did you see that? 
It says it right there. Steadfast love with who? With those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eye be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So he, he, the, the love and outpouring of God's character comes through his people. All through the Old Testament, the people of God were supposed to be known as a people who loved. Who loved. They were not merely a conquering people, though they were a conquering people. They were not merely a righteous people, though they were a righteous people, though they were supposed to be a righteous people. They were supposed to be holy. They were also a people of love who took care of the downcast, the, out, the, the broken, the slave, the widow, the lame. This is why when they left Egypt, they go out a mixed multitude. Because a bunch of people see the Jews leaving and go, we want to go too. And then they make provision in the law. And they say, if you want to be a part of Israel, this is how you do it. You pierce your ear to the door frame. You get the flesh and blood torn on the door. You get to be a part of Israel. There's all these ceremonies that they were supposed to enact. And they became part of Israel. No greater example of that is Caleb, who is of the tribe of Judah. But before that, his father was Ken, who's a Kenite, not a Jew. And he becomes part of the Jewish culture because the gospel has always been present and God has always redeemed and rescued those who would have faith in him. This is not new. This is not plan B. This has always been the way it works. The outpouring of God's character comes through his people. We know this in the New Testament. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be within you. Jesus promises his disciples that the love of God will flow through you because he's inside you. He's the spirit of God living inside you and he enacts his will in you. Second, and John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You have eternal life abiding in him forever because you, you have turned away from the things of the world to the things of God. And you have trusted in Jesus. And in doing so, you become the outflow of his character on the earth. You have purpose here. God uses you to show his glory and make his name great on this earth. That's your purpose. Now, the basis of his prayer, God's character, the outpouring in God's people. And then take note of what happens in verse 6. So he's got the basis of this prayer. First, I'm going to approach God based on his character. Then I'm going to recognize who his people are. Verse 6. Verse 6, second half of it. He's been confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your service, Moses. Now, Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He wasn't part of Ezra chapter 9 and 10. 
He didn't marry a foreign wife that we know of. He doesn't have foreign children. None of that's said about him. But he says, I am guilty. The sins of my people are my sins. The sins that people have committed are the same for me. My father's house. And this is consistent. Daniel prays the same way in Daniel 9. Daniel, who has been holy, who has not given into idol worship, who has not eaten of the food that they gave him, who has, who has been consistent, he prays the same way. He says, I am guilty. Lord, forgive us our sins. They're my people, and I'm guilty. I'm part of the people of God. Now, there's two things to note here. Number one, this is great. This is great holy living in community. You see, holy living community recognizes that your sin is my burden as well. If you are in community with me, we struggle together. We fight sin together. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It doesn't exist. Now, there are Christians who try to keep things to themselves. They hurt themselves. There are Christians who try to force everybody to share things. They hurt themselves too. No, we walk together. We know each other. We know each other's weaknesses. We know each other's strengths. And we work together. This is church. This is Christianity. Nehemiah, Daniel, the prophets of the Old Testament, they give us a tremendous example of what this looks like. Then in the New Testament, you have Paul doing the same thing with the struggles of his brothers and sisters. Where he's coming to them saying, I I want to come to you as a brother, but I, I bear this as well. I bear your trouble too. We do this together. Nehemiah owns the sins of his people. And then note, Nehemiah is persistent and consistent in his prayers. He prays forever. I want to remind you of our phrase we have here. We all struggle. Your struggles are different than mine, but we all struggle best when we all struggle together. This can only exist if I'm willing to see you as the same as me. This can only exist if I'm willing to see you as the same as me and to recognize that you're no better or worse than I am. But we are both in desperate need of Jesus. That's the only way this works. Now, Nehemiah is persistent and consistent. And I want to remind you again, prayer takes a long time. Prayer and listening to the Lord takes a long time. Consider the saints of old who prayed for years to have answers. There was a deacon in Boston who prayed for seven years. Seven years. By himself. Well, he says after three and a half years, four other people joined him. He prayed weekly, once a week in their church for seven years before the Second Great Awakening landed in Boston. And everything changed in their church. In their church. So, we pray. And we wait. And the Lord sends comfort in the Lord's time. Prayer is done consistently in everyday life. Now, I I want to encourage you, please, read the... Go this week at some point and read these exhortations on prayer that Paul gives us in the New Testament. There are so many things to say about prayer in the Bible that there are books written about them, massive ones and short ones 
and devotionals and studies and all kinds of things. If you want to talk about books, I'd be happy to tell you which ones I think are good and which ones to run far, far away from. There, there are many. And you can read them and you can listen to the Spirit and you can hear the Word of God. But learn to pray. Please, Christian, learn to pray. That is our power. We have no power apart from Jesus. And we have direct access to His name and His Word. Learn to pray. Your talents can't make up for lack of prayer. Your skills cannot make up for lack of prayer. You need to pray. Now, the content of His prayer is found next in verses 7 through 10. And we see here, He says, um, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your faithful servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hands. So first we approach God by his character and we understand his character. And then the content of our prayer, we own our own sin. We own our sin. And then here we uh, start with confession. We cite the promises of God and we remind God that these are his People, this is the same thing Moses does in Exodus chapter 32. When God says, I'm going to burn them all down and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Moses goes, no, 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 no. Remember your promises. Remember what you did. Consider your name among the nations. Consider your name among the nations. And these are your people who you brought out of Egypt with a strong and mighty hand. Remember what God said to Moses? Your people, Moses who you brought out of Egypt, I'm going to destroy and start over with you. And Moses goes, no, please, please. And he intercedes on their behalf, giving us a picture of what Jesus does. And how does God end it? Moses, not because you asked. Moses, I'm doing this because I'm God, because I want to. Right? Jesus stands before God on your behalf, interceding on your behalf, just like this taking the sins of the world upon himself, taking your sins upon himself, that you might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. And and you get life because he took death. Nehemiah models this idea, cites the promises of God in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verses 2 through 4 and chapter 12, verse 5 are what he's specifically citing there. If we return to you, you will gather us, is what he's what he's citing. And that's in Deuteronomy, again, chapter 30, verse 2 through 4, and back earlier in chapter 12, verse 5. Jesus now is our place. Did you see the place where God's name was going to dwell? Jesus is our place. We have repented and trusted in Jesus, and now we dwell in the place where his name is. Jesus, the Lord saves, is our place. We get the place. We get the place. Nehemiah is thinking about Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem is nothing without the presence of Jesus. We know 
being Christian, we can see that at the end of Nehemiah, he's going to go, we still need something. We're still missing something. And we can raise our hands as Christians and go, I know what you're missing. Because I know the name. And I know the one in whose salvation is. And he's come. And we can live in him. And he can live in us. And we can have life. And life to the full. And abundant. And free. Remember these things. In Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 7, it says, I will dwell in the midst of the people for, of Israel forever. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, it says, I will dwell in your midst. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we have the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. In John chapter 2, verse 19 and verse 22, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Jesus is our place. Jesus is our place where he has restored us and given us life. He's given us life. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul asks the Corinthians, do you not know that you are the temple of God? God has made his dwelling place in us. We are his temple. We get his presence. We get his name in our hearts and in our lives. We get changed lives because of how great he is. We can overcome sin and death. Nehemiah reminds people, reminds God that these are his people, much as we should, that we are God's people. And when we pray for one another, we ought to remind ourselves and remind the Lord. Lord, these are your people. He's yours. He's yours. Do with them what you will. Father, bring him X, Y, Z. Do these things. Whatever it is you're asking for, this is a key issue in prayer. So we pray, we confess sins, we cite the promises of God, we trust in those promises, and we remind God that these are His people and this is His will. We remind, in reminding God, we're also reminding ourselves. I know it sounds weird to our modern minds to say, remind God. It should sound a little weird, but this is the model we have in Scripture. Proclaiming the truths of God back to a God who wrote them. We remind him of those truths. So, in conclusion, we see, first thing that we can see is that God hears his people. As we read through Nehemiah, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is probably the last phrase before he walks in to talk to the king. But the last phrase before he walks in to talk to Artaxerxes. So the first thing we can learn, or the in conclusion, the concluding thing we can learn about prayer is that God hears you. Now, don't let that slip past you, please. Just don't let that slip past. That's not a trite thing to say. The God of earth and heaven who created all things, who does all things, who knows all things, who loves all things, who keeps all things, the very one that you're able to breathe because he's giving you breath right now, that one hears you. You're less than an ant. I've used the illustration before. I go out to my front yard and if there's an ant pile, I kick it or kill it. I don't think about the ants that are in it. I don't go, oh, that ant has such a great personality. That doesn't come up. I don't know the ant named Fred from the ant named Jane. They're ants. I kill them. They bother me. Right? Now, 
You're smaller than an ant in the cosmic perspective. And yet the Bible says of you that God knows every hair on your head. That he knows every beat of your heart. That he knows everything that you think, every weight that you bear. Jesus, the God of heaven and earth, wept when he saw Mary and the false mourners behind her. This is an intimate, personal God. He hears your prayers. Don't let that slide by. That's awesome. That's amazing. He hears your prayers. Second, delight is found in a right approach to God. Note that the description of the people is that they delight to fear the name of God. A right approach to God is where we find our delight. God is holy. Let's, let's be clear. God is holy and infinite and vast, and you have no business. I have no business walking into his presence. Except that he bids me come. Except that he tells me to draw near. That's incredible. So, so first, God hears you. Second, delight is found in a right approach to him. In a right approach to him. Understanding the grace you've been given in Jesus Christ. That you can approach him as a child approaches a father. Finally, I want to encourage you, Sovereign Grace Fellowship, to ask great things for the kingdom of God. Ask great things. Don't ask for small things. Don't pray little. Oh, you can't. And you should. You should ask for little things, okay? But big. Aim big. One of my prayers every year is that 100 people would come to know the Lord because of the work that I do. Every year I pray that. For sovereign grace, I've prayed for years that we would be a righteous community that follows Jesus, that everybody sees is bizarre and unique and strange and that we can't explain it except to say, Jesus, that's been one of my prayers. I pray big. We pray big every week. We pray big every week. I pray big every single morning. There's a blue notebook that comes out and gets put on my desk and it gets open and I go through a list of impossible prayers that's pages long that I pray over every day and they are big. They're not small. A lot of them are really personal. They're massive. And they're prayed for. Pray big. Pray long. Pray big prayers. Hebrews chapter 4 verses... 16 says, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. You want to walk with the strength of Jesus Christ on this earth? Pray. And pray big. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. Pray. We have this confidence to enter the holy places because of what Jesus has done.